how can we envision the sweeping changes to entire landscapes? Ownership of commons, the air, soils, water, biological diversity, cultural back to the diversity is as critical as biological diversity. In this epic struggle to preserve a habitable that planet, is the only thing which is sustained. The place that you love is now under siege. Deregulated commerce is becoming a threat to the life on this planet. These are system problems. Our humanity is We shouldn't state. ask whether we can survive These are existential questions not. as much as they are systemic questions. Action informed by knowledge of get down place. Work. You're listening to the Schumacher Lectures, a channel hosted by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. The Schumacher Lectures feature speakers who challenge entrenched ways of thinking while exploring how to build a new economy that serves both people and the planet. We need a new kind of politics. The terms left and right don't describe our situation anymore. Presented in the Question of Size series, Gar Alperovitz gave a talk, If You Don't Like Capitalism or State Socialism, What Do You Want?, on November 5th, 2011. Let's have a look at it. A wonderful day, beginning with the wonderful presentation Julie gave us this morning and coming up to the last end. So uh, I'm not at a loss of what to say, but I am in awe of what we've heard so far. If I could go on too long, you'll see I'm not at a loss for words. Uh, let me begin being the final speaker here. What I've absorbed, of course, I'm going to throw away the conversation and the talk that I was going to give you and redo it as is my want. But the place I find myself wanting to talk about is the very first book I wrote, which was PhD thesis basically, was on the bombing of Hiroshima. Odd place to start. And the puzzlement was why this country and its leaders, knowing there were alternatives, which is now established, nevertheless went forth with those bombings. What was the nature of our culture and the expansion that had created it, and the system that had driven it, that ended up doing that, and doing Vietnam, and Korea, and Iraq, and Afghanistan, and the World Bank, and the IMF. What was that all about? I'm giving you shorthand for a way of thinking about very complex ideas that people, I'm sure, understand. but. It, the short circuit is some form of odd kind of American imperialism, and it was better than colonialism, came out of this particular system. And it was a tragic and ironic form because there's a genuine interest in promoting democracy and liberty, and there's a genuine interest in running the global economy in a way that people thought and do think is the only way possible. I've worked at high levels of the U.S. government and the Senate. People believe they are doing well. It is not that these are bad folks. And yet, havoc is wreaked. Wars go on. The third world is badly destroyed. We are up against not simply a power structure, not simply a system called capitalism, but a way of thinking that is genuine and honorable and, in my view, wrong. So it is better to start there, I think, when we think about what's going on than in demonizing. But it's a big deal. 
because now you're up against something more powerful. You're up against a system, whatever that might mean, and a culture and an ideology. So that's kind of driven me back into the kinds of questions that I think are being posed by the Occupy Wall Street and by many of the people who have spoken so far today. You can put it another way. If you don't like corporate capitalism and you don't like state socialism, what the hell do you want and why should we listen to you if you don't know? Seriously, what do you want? What do we want? And if we don't know, what are you talking about? So, I don't pretend to offer you a final answer to that, but I do think that question is on the table. It's on the table for the first time in my adult lifetime. It may be on the table for the first time in American history. We can go through the long history of how in the 19th century, free land allowed for almost anything when the problems occurred. And how in the 20th century, not by design, wars in the first quarter of the century, in the second quarter of the century, both bailed out great stagnation and then the Great Depression, Korea, Vietnam, and the high military budgets of the third quarter of the century. Those were not by design, but they stabilized the system. With nuclear weapons, I think we are up against the incapacity of that particular mechanism to stabilize this particular system. I don't think it will collapse. The U.S. government was an 11 percent floor in 1929. It is now roughly a 30 percent floor, depending upon what the GDP denominator is. It may stagnate and decay and stagnate and decay and stagnate and decay, all the while gobbling resources and creating climate destruction. That's an odd context. I think that's the context we are moving into historically. It is also a context that is steadily forcing people to ask deeper and deeper and deeper questions, triggered by what we've seen happen wonderfully with Occupy Wall Street. It would not have triggered such a reaction if people didn't know something was wrong. People sense there is something profoundly wrong Many don't have words for it, certainly don't have concrete actions in many cases, have some inkling of what needs to be done. There's a lot of projects, there are a lot of ideas, but when a large number of people realize, including the Tea Party in its strange way, that something's wrong with this, that's a very profound moment of history. It is the most profound moment of history I have ever engaged. And I would live through the 60s was very active in the anti-war movement and in the civil rights movement and so forth. Those movements, particularly the feminist movement and the civil rights movement, were about getting into the system, largely. Let us in. Don't discriminate. Don't discriminate. Don't discriminate. There were pieces of those movements that had a different vision. That was the dominant form. And the environmental movement was regulate the corporations. And indeed, there was a moment burst open to try to regulate. I think that moment is over and getting in is no longer the question except for very large numbers of people, particularly minorities, who are not getting in at all. 
Those are no longer the primary questions. There are profound questions of how the system works and whether it can be changed in large, I think. So I think that's what the underlying problem we're talking about here is. If you don't like capitalism and you don't like socialism, what the hell do you want and how do you get there? So that's where I'm, I'm coming from, just to lay my cards on the table. Another way to come at it is we spend a great deal of time at the Democracy Collaborative not theorizing and airizing about history, though that's where we're coming from, Ted Howard and I, who's someone who will talk about the Cleveland Project in a, in a few minutes, but asking, is there anything that people are actually doing on the ground which a totally financially constrained press doesn't have the money or the interest in covering that's actually going on on the ground? So here's a web page for you, community-wealth, www.org. Put the dash in. What we do is try to find out what's out there. And we've been doing it for you know, longer than I care to remember. But there are, in one form or another, four or 5,000 neighborhood corporations, nonprofit corporations trying to benefit communities, some good, some bad, some very interesting, some not so interesting. There are if you include all forms of worker-owned co-ops, and they come in various flavors, and some not so good, some wonderful, some changing before, even ESOPs are changing, by the way. Many are becoming unionized and participatory. There are something like 11,000 of those involving five or six more million people than are involved in the labor movement on the ground in America today. Nobody's covering it. It's not being talked about. Land trusts, which Bob Swan started you know, 30 years ago, there were none. They are now popping up in different forms, hundreds of them around the country. It, all over the country, people are work, looking at various forms of ownership. The land trust is another. There are co-ops, including the credit unions. I opened the morning news this morning, and the credit unions were becoming very popular as a place to shift your money, all of a sudden. There are 120 million Americans involved in one or another form of co-ops, including, of course, credit unions. So there are, I can go on and give you more and more of these examples. You find them on the website. There are nonprofit corporations called social enterprises. The sole purpose of the business is to do some good mission for, this, for society. They're popping up all over. Uh, municipal ownership is beginning. People are not aware. There's municipal ownership for hotels, of land development, rivers. There are 500 projects around the country where cities have established ownership of capturing the gas off of the garbage and turning it into electricity and turning it into jobs and turn, turning it into revenues. So it's another form. Uh, and by the way, for you socialists out there, you probably are aware that 25% of America's electricity is created and distributed by either public utilities or co-ops. 25% public enterprise, efficient, much cheaper because the executive salaries are not high and there's no profits, on balance as efficient or more efficient and more ecologically developed and, and amenable to community interest. So there's a lot of, I could go on this way, there are a lot of very interesting things going on. States are invest, some states, there are 27 states that currently, these are state governments, public ownership, owning and establishing businesses, venture capitalist forms in which the state keeps an ownership part. America? Socialism? There are very, very many character projects like this that I'm just giving you the kind of 
surface level of that are just not reported on. Many of them are really interesting from an ecological point of view. Many of them are not. But there is a lot of accumulating experience, one part of which, and I'm picking and choosing on these, they all democratize the ownership of capital. What did I say? I said they democratize the ownership of capital in a very down-home American way. Co-ops, land trusts, municipal enterprise, a lot of them in the South, by the way. And they begin to tell you something about the possibility, no more yet, no more yet, of slowly establishing in a radically decentralized localist and then maybe further way a different vision of how wealth, productive wealth, might actually be organized, maybe even some principles which would allow you to begin talking about a long-term systemic possibility. Maybe. Systems are characterized historically and currently, above all, by who owns the capital. Property relationships, feudalism, capitalism, state socialism. And if you don't like any of those, ultimately, you've got to ask who owns the capital in your system. We now know that 1% owns just under 50% just under 50 of the investment capital in this system. 5% own 70%. It is an extremely highly concentrated corporate capitalist system, maybe even more extreme in its ownership patterns than medieval society. I say that not rhetorically. The pattern is medieval in its scale and scope of concentration of ownership. So ultimately, if you are interested in systemic change, I'm going to use a loaded word. Rather than projectism, we must address who owns capital and what does the system look like that might be democratized, that might be very American in content, and that might give rise to the principles and nurture principles of democracy, ownership, and community, and ecological sustainability. I was, legisl I was legislative director to Gaylord Nelson, the founder of Earth Day. Our goal then was to regulate. We've run out of that possibility, I believe. There are deeper pressures at work. So let me say just a bit of a word about that and sharpen the edge of this uh, nasty argument I'm making. In all of the advanced systems, including some that were discussed this morning, particularly those little countries in Europe, like Germany, I'm going to come back to that, but remember, Germany in scale can be tucked into Montana. We live in a continent. If you want democracy in a continent, you've got a big problem because those countries are little. I sometimes say to my students, just to drive the nail in, like those dinky little countries, France and Germany, meaning that the polity is organizable in smaller scale than in a continent, maybe. But what has happened, I think you can see in this country, in all of the places where you actually had the kind of advances towards using the regulatory system, the regulatory state, 
to manage environmental issues, sort of, you also had strong labor movements. Historically, the progressive parties required a strong labor movement, even when it had fights with the environmental movement, to enthrone a regime that could manage, through the regulatory system, problems of the environment. One of the positives and one of the negatives we face is that the American labor movement is in radical decay, under attack, and is faltering and becoming worse and worse. It was at its height a very weak labor movement. The Swedes were at 80 percent of the labor force. At the height, we were at 34.5 percent of the labor force organized. That was 1946. The total labor movement's 11 percent, 11.8 percent, 11.9, depends whose numbers are used, 5 percent in the private sector, and declining. I push that number out and underline it for a reason. Some people believe that there will be a resurgent of the old Democratic Liberal Party, out of which I grew, I'm a Wisconsin progressive, through the organization of power to make the state powerful enough to manage the corporate problems that can be identified and spoken about as we're discussed today. Social democracy and abroad, progressive liberalism here. My contention is that option is over, or it is in decay. I'll take as much of it as I can get, but it is not the future. And it, underlying that reality, if it is a reality, so I give it to you to chew on and fight with and struggle with, means there either is another way forward or there is not a way forward. That's what we used to call in the 60s a heavy rap. If the traditional models of managing the problems we address from inequities, social problems, environmental, required a strong social democratic formation of the labor movement at its core, and if that's over, either there is another way forward, institutionally, not just good folks, the institutional muscle and organizing power and money of an institution, in this case labor, or there's no way forward. We can struggle about that. My suggestion to you is, paradoxically, precisely because of the failure of this particular way of going about business, out of which I come, Paradoxically, we're finding these things developing around the country, and we're finding anger, we're finding consciousness change, and sense that something's wrong, and why so many people have responded to Occupy Wall Street. My hat's off to Occupy Wall Street. What is important is that there's a huge response that tells you about America. There is something brewing, and I believe that the paradox is that Almost because of the failings of this way about, of going about managing corporate capitalism, we are beginning to think about and build institutions and develop ideas and develop consciousness that's beginning to point in a different direction. Maybe. I'm enough of an old Schumacher, and by the way, you know Schumacher was a socialist. Did you know that? Everyone failed, likes the first three parts of Small is Beautiful. Read the fourth part. 
Schumacher argued, and we honor this and need to face it, I'm going to give you the quote, private ownership of large-scale industry is an absurdity. Small is beautiful. And he struggled with what do you do about that? He came up with two or three, nationalization was one, remember he was chief economist of the National Coal Board, nationalized industry, which by the way was as efficient as our coal, more, in, more efficient than our coal industry. Um, he struggled with what do you do about that? Do you want to set up, Scott Bader was one of his options. And then he had complex schemes to transfer ownership in a different way to the communities, or maybe nationalization, or maybe nonprofits. We haven't even stepped up to that question. We've been looking at local projects and they're kind of giving us ideas about, you might even be able, the last speaker, you might even be able to organize a local economy around small, high, high tech businesses, the kind Julie was talking about, different co-ops, land trusts, all sorts of nonprofits, social enterprise. You might even be able to begin to do that, but what do you do about big, inter, big enterprise? And then there's another dirty word. And what do you do about planning? You want to manage a slow growth, low growth economy? You are ultimately talking, whether you're talking about how hours may be changed and the policies involved, the things that Julie was talking about, or talking about changing material input, you are talking about regimes using one or another mechanism, regulation, tax benefits, or other forms that are inherently a planning system. Now you're back to power. Who can, we, by the way, we plan all the time. That's what's going on with the, the committees in Congress right now. They're going to give you a very nasty plan, but it will be an integrated plan that's going to cut your budgets and cause more recession and so forth. We do planning. The question is who controls the planners? So if you're interested in systemic change, not just projectism, we're going to have to face not only those kinds of questions, but the kinds of institutions from the ground up that begin to establish the power base over time, over the long haul, that might set the terms of reference for the larger patterns we're talking about. My term for that is a pluralist commonwealth. Many different forms, co-ops, land trusts, worker-owned companies, etc. plural forms of commonwealth. I don't think it's a great term, but it's descriptive of the mix and the kind of American diversity that my friends in Racine, Wisconsin, where I come from, would understand. I can talk to my conservative friends about that from high school. They understand you can do these things in Racine, Wisconsin, and you better be able to understand it or you're not going to get anywhere. I have found when we talk about real things on the ground, almost anybody can be, dis these discussions can be, ha can be had with. And then they begin to lead to larger questions. I, had a, I have a very, very conservative friend from my old high school buddy, very, very brilliant, very right-wing guy, very religious. And I go back to him, him in Wisconsin, and I said, well, what do you think of Russ Feingold when, when he was still running? He said, well, you know, I voted for Russ. You voted for Russ Feingold? He was a man of principle. He said what he mean, meant, and I respect that. Strange, strange quality. So one of the lessons is, what do you want, and can you say it with integrity and meaning, and also know what you're talking about, really. So let me press forward a little bit on 
some of the elements that take us beyond projectism and begin to offer maybe a sketch of what could become maybe a systemic design. Maybe. One of the speakers talked about a project we've been heavily involved with in Cleveland, Ohio. The Evergreen Cooperatives, the Democracy Collaborative, did a great deal of work on that. And it was work that came, we tried to do it elsewhere, at the University of Maryland, but we ran into trouble, which left similar project. But finally, for odd reasons, and by the way, odd reasons are important. Things happen. <laughs> Take advantage of them. Uh, we've helped launch this project with the help of many, many, many other people in Ohio. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about the project, but also about the process that built it and where it's going, but also about what it suggests about design. Many of these, many as you know, these are worker co-ops. They are in a neighborhood we haven't talked about. Julie mentioned that many, many of the people who have been involved in the new economy movement are highly educated, wealthy, mostly white, not entirely. This project is in a part of Cleveland, Ohio, where the median income is $18,000 per family, almost entirely black. And in that community, for complex reasons, and a long history about which I will say only a little bit, we can talk more about it later, there is now developing a complex of worker-owned companies that are sophisticated in design and also a little bit different from just co-ops. I'm going to underline that because those of you who know something about what's co-ops and worker-owned co-ops, they, they have a dicey history because you run out of, into a lot of problems without an adequate capital source, without an adequate market. There's a history. The Ejida in, in Mexico was brutally destroyed, which is a peasant cooperative structures built into Mexico. If you look closely at, someone else mentioned Argentine worker-owned companies, very exciting. But if you actually study the ones that are now succeeding for the most part, not entirely, are also linked to the municipal purchasing power of Buenos Aires municipal government, slightly stabilizing part of the market. What's going on in Cleveland is We'll talk about Mondragon. It draws on Mondragon. Some of you know about Mondragon. I'm sure many do in some partial ways. But the Cleveland model is as follows. There are a series of worker-owned cooperatives. There's a large, large, the most ecologically kind of advanced laundry in the north part of Ohio. It uses about a third of the water and heats about a third of the water. There's a solar installation company. There, we just broke brown, ground on a three-and-a-half-acre um, greenhouse. There are about two businesses a year that are going to be set up. There's a revolving fund that helps finance these. And it is a complex significantly oriented by design at the purchasing power of large not-for-profit institutions in the area hospitals and universities primarily. In that particular part of Cleveland, the universities and hospitals purchase $3 billion a year. I was excited to hear someone talking earlier about what could be done with university endowments. $3 billion a year in that neighborhood, plus construction, plus salaries. That's just procurement. 
all nonprofit, mostly subsidized by the taxpayer, either through Medicare or Medicaid in the hospital system or the, health, or the university system, educational money, and none of it going there. So what has happened here is by a very complex organizing process, some part of that procurement, very small part, is being directed to partly stabilize, not entirely, we use the free market as well, the cooperatives in a way that gives them some stability and some protection from the violence of the, mar of the free market. And the reason is not simply that people like worker co-ops and not simply because some of these nonprofits have an interest in improving the neighborhood. Hospitals like to have it a little bit better around their environs. But they are helping rebuild the community as a whole, not just a few workers. That's a sin in some quarters. There are purists who don't want to hear me say that. The nonprofits, the worker-owned companies in the Cleveland are by design linked to a nonprofit community benefiting corporation. They are run independently. They give back 10% of the profits to a revolving fund and some part of which is used for the community, but otherwise they are independent worker-owned companies except they can't be sold. And the principle is we are building community not simply a couple of workers who will run off to the suburbs as soon as they make some money and sell the company. That, by the way, purists in the co-op movement, there are about three to 400, maybe 500 genuine worker co-ops that have not increased in scale or size for many, many years. But they hold the principle of worker ownership rather than community as sacrosanct. And the argument here is that, no, there is a larger interest, particularly if we are using community-benefiting institutions, health and education, and the reconstruction of the community as a whole, as a goal, there is a larger interest in building a structure that is responsive to that. So that's a little bit, we have to chew on that. That's an oddity, and that's a principle. And we're trying to stabilize the market substantially because so much, there are so many community interests involved. It will be very easy otherwise for a very large multinational that's doing solar installations to zoom in on these small companies, undercut the prices for a year or two, and clobber them. In Buenos Aires, they use the city government for exactly the same purposes to help stabilize in part the market of these companies. I have just given you a design principle for a radically decentralized, if you expand the principle, for a radically decentralized community building cooperative system. Were you to apply that principle, substantial stability of community markets, a community sustaining system in which worker ownership was linked in a design of that kind and built that simple principle, you would have the design of something that doesn't look like corporate capitalism and doesn't look like state socialism and begins with the principle of community as the dominant principle and works backward from there.
Uh, I think that's an important question, and let me tell you why. If you don't do that, not only do you uproot the communities, something like that. Cleveland was a city of 800,000. It's now 300,000. Where did the people go? They were blown away, scattered. Nobody cares, particularly for the black and poor. Either you can stabilize that community, boom, or that's what happens as capital moves on. Secondly, we have been throwing away, literally throwing away cities. If you have an interest in carbon content, interest in rebuilding cities, and then rebuilding them again, when we do that, extraordinary capital costs, extraordinary carbon costs. Third principle, if you don't substantially stabilize the local basis of the economy, you cannot do serious planning for sustainability, high density, mass transportation planning, the key ingredients to changing the carbon footprint of a community. And if it moves on in fragments, you can't do climate change there. There won't be anybody there enough to do it. You'll have wreckage as they move on to the next and the next. Think about that. Simple question. If you want to stabilize communities, you're going to have to do something about it. And I just said planning. That is to say, we've, we've written about this in some other ways, but supposing we were to have a serious mass transit high-speed rail system, just supposing we were able to step up to what is obvious in many other countries, and what we will one, do, one day do when, when we overcome, then we would have a lot of things to build as a society. And they would all be paid for by taxpayers and commuters. Would we want to hand it over to Bombardier, Canadian company, or, or the Spanish companies, or the German companies, all vying for this? Or could we not begin rebuilding American transit and manufacturing and target the jobs to stabilize communities so that the communities might be stabilized as well in a way that dealt with the underlying problems in communities that lead to climate change. Again, I've given you, taken that little tiny model in Cleveland and extended it over time to some of the ingredients of a larger systemic model to try to deal with some of these problems and do it in a decentralized way. Now, I've been around a long time, <laughs> as, as Susan said. I do not think we're going to do this tomorrow. But I'm also a historian. I wear these two hats, political economists and historians. You know, systemic change comes and goes. Most societies endure radical changes, unexpected. Social movements arise out of nowhere. I wrote a book published a couple of years ago, America Beyond Capitalism. I was glad I said, there's going to be a movement that's going to explode. It's the first time I've actually predicted something in general, very general, because there's something wrong. And people know something larger must be done. We are now casting about, looking, and doing wonderful experiments, and trying to learn, and trying to begin to sense where to, where to go. Opened up now for the first time in many generations to really rethinking things.
Now, we're talking about systemic change. You want to play this game? The chips are decades of your life. <laughs> Don't mess with it unless you're willing to really dig in and, you know, put some time on the line. Decades of your life. By the way, I'm talking to the person in your chair. This is not a general discussion. These are existential questions as much as they are systemic questions about whether we want to do something or not. So what becomes necessary is not opening up, as we have seen from Occupy Wall Street, another doing projects and learning about the multitude of projects out there that are that the kind of things at this stage of development, in my view, that begin to give people an inkling of what might be. They're not a lot more than that, but that's a hell of a lot. And they begin to give people a chance to theorize and begin to develop what might happen if we extended these principles. And what might happen if we began to add up piece by piece other parts of the political and social and cultural movements who care about community, democracy, equality, even liberty is at stake. Liberty is at stake because if this thing decays much more, we're going to see violence and then there'll be a crackdown. So heavy-duty issues are on the table. In any case, right now, there's a lot to do. It's a moment really opening up and it's an exciting moment to begin to do all of this and to step up to it in a way that takes us beyond anything that was done in the 60s and I think in the 30s and in the progressive era before that. That is to say, the slow and steady reconstruction culturally of the notion of a community as Americans, culturally as a community in Cleveland, Ohio, or Racine, Wisconsin, the re-knitting of community as a cultural as much as an economic idea, and doing it in a way that is informed by what we've learned from the ecological and the environmental movement, but is also very tough-minded about systemic questions. I don't want to see American co-ops go the way of the Hida or the many other co-ops that have died a borning. I'm not interested in token jobs that fall apart. The question, if I'm, you know, even roughly close to the ball, the question is systemic, not projectism. Let me see if I can say that another way. We need projects desperately, and we need to advance and learn from them and develop them. But we need to go beyond projectism to systemic change and a vision that is real and can answer the questions, if you don't like capitalism, you don't like socialism, what do you want and how are you going to get there? Really. And if you don't have an answer, why should we listen to you? The starting point is where we are, but I think we need collectively to grapple with that in a much more sophisticated way than any of us have ever stepped up to, and then begin to advance it and look out for it in cultural ways, political ways, economic ways, and beyond. What is really interesting is that the ingredients are here. The cultural ingredients and what young people have shown us, the beginnings of awareness that something is truly profoundly wrong, 
the global aspects of this that are beginning to say something is globally wrong, the economic experiments reaching a stage we can actually learn from them and develop them, and the economics of it beginning to develop. All of this, I think, is on our plate, and in an exciting way, it does have the problem, though. If what I've said is even halfway true, it does present this very, very nasty existential problem. If even maybe it is our lot in history to open the possibility of that future, really, we have some responsibility in the matter. I'm talking to the person in your seat and mine. So, uh, I'm in a church. <laughs> I always wanted to be a rabbi. <laughs> uh, the questions really, as I say, I think come down to, can we as a whole learn enough, do enough, and rise to the occasion to be able actually to transform the most powerful corporate capitalist system in the history of the world? I think maybe we can, just possibly. And in any case, it's certainly worth a hell of a try because it's all positive development anyway. So thank you very much. To hear more talks like this one and discover more than 30 years of Schumacher lectures, visit centerforneweconomics.org. The Schumacher Center for New Economics Research Library houses the collections of E.F. Schumacher, Robert Swan, and other influential thinkers in the new economy movement. You can strengthen our mission by purchasing a copy of your favorite Schumacher lectures at centerfornewaconomics.org slash order dash pamphlets. Our work is supported by listeners like you. You can donate to our cause at centerfornewaconomics.org slash donate. This library and the Schumacher Lectures capture powerful voices for economic reform, voices with the strength to move and inspire. They frame and inform action, but are not themselves the action. At a time when our earth is in crisis and our communities face complex challenges, we are all charged with creating solutions. The Schumacher Center's applied work seeks to implement the principles described by these speakers within the context of the Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts. This work includes crafting innovative leases that share equity and improvements while holding land in community trust, building Berkshires, a local currency designed to democratize monetary issue and keep money circulating in the region, and engaging citizens in supporting the development of regionally appropriate businesses, creating local jobs while retaining local ownership and control. You can support our work in a new economy by making a donation at centerfornewaconomics.org slash donate. Or call us at 413-528-1737 to make an appointment to visit our research library and office at 140 Jug End Road, Great Barrington, Massachusetts.